I'm Luke Alley, and this is All Things Climbing. My brother Dave and I have been talking quite a bit about consumerism in the outdoor sports industry and what it means to be an environmentally and socially conscious brand. And as I was looking into that topic further, I came across the work of journalist J.B. McKinnon, a contributor to The New Yorker on consumer issues and ecology. He's written several award-winning books, including The 100-Mile Diet and, most recently, The Once and Future World. Both take clear, hard looks at sustainability and our relationship with nature more broadly. A longtime climber himself, JB is now working on a book specifically on the topic of consumption in the outdoor sports industry, so I was very glad to talk to him from his home office in Vancouver. Before we dive in, I want to be clear that this conversation between JB and me is not happening outside of consumer culture looking in. He and I are very much participants inside the same bubble as everyone else. So this conversation is not about guilt tripping or calling anyone out. It's an attempt at some honest introspection over the very complicated issue of our environmental impacts as climbers, both as individuals and as a community. Along the way, we talk about what JB considers to be the three main environmental impacts from the outdoor industry, how those manifest in climbing, and the path to a more sustainable future. So here it is, my conversation with JB McKinnon. Thanks for uh, talking to me, JB. I'm familiar with your work as a writer, but I just wanted to get to know you as a, as a climber a little bit. How did you get into climbing? I had a really strange introduction to climbing because I, I grew up in a place where there were no, particularly no real rock climbers to speak of in the interior of British Columbia. And I was on a road trip out to see some relatives with my mom, and we stopped at a gas station, and I saw a copy of Outside Magazine that had a, an image of John Backer free soloing on Cookie Cliff in Yosemite. And I just looked at that, bought the magazine and said, I want to do that, that thing that person is doing. <laughs> I mean, I really didn't have any idea what it was. But within, you know, within a couple of months, I had found some people in the mountaineering club to climb with and they kind of directed me to the one person who really focused on rock climbing. And probably within a year, you know, I was doing something close to that image. I was actually, you know, free soloing up a wall. Um, I climbed on ropes as well, of course, but, um, but at that point in my life, I really saw rope climbing as a way to rehearse for, for ropeless climbing. <laughs> <laughs> I've left all that behind since then, by the way. When did your free soloing taper off? Well, I started climbing when I was about 15. And when I got into my early 20s, probably, I started to realize that I, I didn't really have the... Uh, Alex Honnold, John Backer, Peter Croft mindset. And, uh, you know, I had a few experiences where I was up on solos and I would just be really, you know, really afraid. And uh, to the point that, that I, you know, couldn't really properly control my reactions. And obviously, you need to be able to control your reactions. And I didn't seem to be, you know, I didn't seem to be getting better at controlling them. I was a pretty anxious kid anyway, and I think in some ways that's why I was drawn to free soloing and to climbing because it, you know, it involved so much self-control. But there were limits to my self-control. <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit about one of those pitches? Sure. I mean, I mainly free soloed in my local area, which no one, including in Canada, has heard of. But there was a 10D there 
that my partner and I had set up and it was uh, started with a crack and ended up with kind of slabby bolted section. And that was the crux of it. And I repeatedly soloed up to the crux only to realize that I, you know, I just didn't have, didn't have it enough together mentally to do 10 D slab climbing on limestone. So I, you know, I was up there and then down climbing and up there and then down climbing. And some of those down climbs were pretty harrowing. You know, I would be, I'd get up there and kind of realize that I didn't have my shit together. <laughs> and once you realize that it's, it's really hard to hold it together. So right. the down climbing would be pretty rugged. That, that was probably the climb where I started to realize, you know, I, I don't think I'm, I just don't think I've got a brain built for this kind of climbing. Yeah. Not many do. That's for sure. No, no. And I, you know, I'm really glad that I learned that lesson the relatively easy way. (laughs) Oh my God. For real. Did climbing play a role in you kind of becoming an environmental activist? I'm sure it did, but in a sense, those two things followed parallel trajectories. Um, my family had kind of introduced us to the outdoors in general and and um, my parents were pretty aware of environmental issues and and actually we as kids myself and my brothers kind of overtook our parents early on once they'd introduced us to those sorts of ideas we we really engaged with them ourselves and and uh, and you know kind of became little little environmentalists <laughs> um, I mean when I was in elementary school I was I was personally embroidering, you know, save the whales into the backs of, you know, the back of my hoodie. Um, so I, I was pretty into that stuff and then discovered climbing after that, actually. But, but certainly spending all of that time out in, you know, in beautiful outdoor locations where you climb just made me appreciate the environment more and more. What are the biggest environmental issues within today's climbing culture? Well, I think the first thing I'd want to say about environmental issues within today's climbing culture is that we focus on all of the wrong ones. When we when we focus on our impact as climbers, we're thinking about things like bolting and scrubbing tick marks and erosion at the base of crags and things like this. And uh, I think the big three areas where climbing culture has major sustainability concerns are the question of whether or not we're buying too much stuff, whether climbing culture has sunk too far into consumer culture. Uh, number two is I think we're not leaving enough places alone. We climb everything. Every piece of rock seems to be getting scrubbed and bolted and roots put up. Every crag in, in any area seems to have to be developed. We're climbing at night. We're climbing in cold weather that we didn't used to do. And we're really not leaving much of a break for cliffs and crags to exist as ecological environments. And I think the last one is, is that we don't question enough how much traveling we do and how sustainable or unsustainable that travel is. You, you can watch on Instagram as all of these professional climbers make a circuit of the globe every year. And, um, and obviously that's, you know, there's, there are really serious sustainability issues attached to that. 
but I also I do think that maybe climbing culture has more responsibility than the broader culture to be a pioneer in shifting at least some of us off of that track because climbing does have this long history of of questioning its impact and you know the clean climbing movement and and these sorts of things and uh, I've I've always thought that climbing is one of the more thoughtful outdoor cultures and is maybe a, a good place for these sorts of ideas to start being discussed and, and maybe actually take root. Let's talk about the the growing consumerism in climbing. Could you start just by walking me through just what exactly is so problematic about consumerism? Really, there are two major drivers of all of the planet's environmental problems. One is population and the other is consumption. So the number of people matters, but uh, how much each of those people consumes matters, in fact, more than the number uh, because our rate of consumption is increasing even faster than the, the rate of increase in the human population on the planet. So consumption is absolutely critical uh, in terms of getting a handle on literally every environmental problem uh, that we face on the planet today. There's always been this weird weird uh, tension in outdoor culture in that we buy products to go out and live a simpler, less consumeristic lifestyle. <laughs> so, you know, I think many people who are active in the outdoors do so to kind of get away from consumer culture and, and its standards. And, and so I think that we have tended to kind of forgive ourselves for the things we buy in order to do that. How do you de kind of define the outdoor industry and what kind of makes it distinct from other industries? I mean, to me, the outdoor industry is the industry that provides goods and services to the outdoor community. And uh, what makes them distinct is is really, I think, the fact that they they emerge from outdoor culture, and so they they have and are influenced strongly by the values of of the outdoor community and the outdoor culture. Um, other than that, I don't see them as particularly distinct from other industries. The outdoor industry is generally in the business of trying to sell more stuff and more services uh, every year. Most most of those companies operate on a on a growth model, and so it it models all of the same things that other consumer industries do. It it sells the idea that you know that a ski jacket is like an iPhone, and if yours is two years old, then you're working with obsolescent features. It encourages the idea that we need really specific products for you know very specific ends. So, for example, you need you need just the right layers for um, spring, for summer, fall, winter. You need just the right layers for a misty day, a rainy day, a hot day, and so on. Um, and then, as we are convinced by that and adopt those sorts of uh, changes. We enjoy them. You know, you, you start to realize, oh, I can be perfectly comfortable in every condition. And, and here I am and I realize I don't have just the right kind of clothes to be comfortable for trail running at, um, you know, on a, on a 
windy day with the possibility of rain, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, right up to the idea that, you know, you go into any of these major outdoors shops and, and there's a lineup of goodies as you walk up towards the till that, that are trying to lure you to make a, a quick impulse purchase. I mean, the outdoor industry does all those things. I've heard people make the point that if I buy these products, I am supporting this company, which is then doing other kind of good things in the world that are that are offsetting their impacts and kind of you're supporting responsible companies in a competitive environment. Um, what do you think about that? I think that when people are making a purchase, it's really good for them to think consciously about the values of the company that they're going to buy from and uh, the sustainability or lack of sustainability in the production system that uh, that produced the product that you're thinking about buying, those are all, those those are all good impulses. Uh, but uh, the end result of it is still that we're buying way more shit <laughs> to to use in the outdoors than than is sustainable. And and anyone who has looked at the question, you know, even briefly, um, would say the same thing. In fact, you know, Patagonia is a company that I think is more honest about this than than a lot of companies has has said as much they've said you know that they perceive their path as one of good growth meaning that it's good for the patagonia company to be expanding its market share because it's a socially and environmentally conscious company but they've also said that they are still a long ways away from you know causing no social or environmental harm with the production of their products, and that even for them, if they continue permanently to operate on a on a model of endless growth and consumption, then eventually you end up in the same place. You know, you end up with the consumption of the world's resources being being unsustainable. You know, even green products can't be sustainable if if the demand for them is is just perpetually growing. Is there a particular kind of piece of equipment or product in climbing that you think is problematically marketed and produced? Yeah. I mean, climbing is actually kind of interesting because it really demands durable products for a lot of its, you know, for a lot of its activities. Um, but I think in climbing, probably the main area you see it would be in clothing, um, climbing specific clothing, clothing for all kinds of different climbing conditions. You know, in that regard, I think climbers have participated just as much as anybody else in wanting this year's colors, this year's cuts, and gear that's very, very finely tuned to whatever weather conditions we're about to face. You do see some also in climbing, like the development of people having a quiver of climbing shoes and climbing shoes for every rock type and every rock steepness and condition. And and those sorts of things that follow on the same sorts of patterns in bikes and skis and surfboards and so on. So, yeah, I mean, you know, all of the trends that affect outdoor gear in, in general are are affecting climbing gear as well. Although, you know, as I think about it, if I wanted to point to one thing that's emerged in climbing culture that seems particularly, you know, particular, particularly consumeristic, it's probably the sprinter van. You know the shift from the dirtbag lifestyle to the, to the uh, you know to driving 
basically a small bus around from glamping. Cl- yeah, the glamping, exactly. The glamping trend. You're driving around a, a little house, basically, that's that's typically equipped with all kinds of specialized equipment for cooking and lighting and, you know, foldable wine glasses and <laughs> all these sorts of things. It wasn't that long ago that people, you know, that, climber, that many climbers really kind of dirtbagged their way around and their climbing clothes were their pairs of khakis that, that had... Uh, you know, gotten too beat up to where to work. We're not we're not that distant in time from those days, from the times when people had one pair of boots. And and I you know, I don't want to be ridiculously romantic about about the good old days, but there's no question that was a simpler time with a lower consumer impact. And we have to really start to question how far down the path we're going we want to go. Uh, before we start to draw some lines and say, well, you know, in, uh, we've got a problem here. <laughs> it's interesting because, or when I when I think about like, especially problematic products, I don't have that knee jerk reaction to something like, you know, cams. But at the same mm-hmm. time, do you like really need to buy ten of this one size in order to climb this one crack? Right. Yeah. And actually, with protection, I think light weighting is one of the things that where the kind of consumer culture rubber hits the road. Because yeah, when they make protection very very lightweight, then it seems to be less and less durable. And um, and it also really encourages people to feel like they constantly have to be like throwing out the full rack of gear they bought two years ago because a few more um, grams have been shaved off the weight and with the with the new model so um those are, you know even with protection there's things that that we need to be thinking about like what what is a what is an ideal balance of durability of of cams versus uh versus how lightweight they are and and i mean am i really climbing so hard that that i need to be shaving um shaving weight off of my harness and my rope and my gear and and uh, my my shoes and and uh, everything that I wear on my body, or you know, could I just accept the fact that I probably do pretty close to as well in a pair of jeans and a you know harness from 1989 and a 11 mil rope? I mean, um, what's I think that's that's the that's the trouble we get ourselves into is when we start to think that everything needs to be perfect or we're not going to have a good time out there climbing that day. It seems to like demand that people examine more why exactly they climb and what do they actually need to achieve that, right? Yeah, and I think it's also a matter of of uh, can we change the tone in the community because it's especially difficult for individuals to to feel like they can't keep up with what the culture is doing. I mean, if, if everybody, you know, is buying their way into the next grade of climbing and you choose not to, then pretty soon you just feel like you suck. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, you know, that's, that's not fun. Um, and it's very hard for people Mm. to sustain that, to just Mm. be like, well, here I am lingering at 11 D while all of my friends are climbing 12 B. Like that's just not that great an experience. So it's, you know, the whole community has to start to kind of embrace 
a different approach. And again, I think it, it's difficult for a community to do that. I think it gets a lot easier if the message from the bottom to the top and from the top to the bottom starts to develop in the same way. So the brands are talking about those sorts of values and people in the community are talking about those sorts of values. Then you have a shot at changing the, the culture of climbing. But individual people sacrificing their own happiness to be like the one in a hundred people who change is not going to be enough. And it'll just be, it'll just be martyrdom for those, for those poor souls who, <laughs> who have to go out to the crag every day and, you know, and, and either feel like they suck or, you know, have to, to tell themselves a story about, you know, how they're better than everybody else, at least on, on the green front. Right. I'm, I'm really not a big advocate of, of, of people making individual sacrifices rather than just participating in, in a broader conversation about it that has, um, that can help change the culture because it's just really easy with consumption to start saying those people in the sprinter van are terrible people because they consume more than me rather than looking at our own behavior, looking at the behavior of the climbing community as a whole. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about leaving some spaces alone and kind of actively deciding to preserve and allow them to be wild places. Is that related or distinct to like developing certain places more responsibly? The question of the impact that we have on cliffs and crags as environments is related both to the idea that, that we may want to leave some of them alone entirely and to the question of how we develop them when we, when we decide that that's not what we're going to do. And it's true. I mean, it, it, it asks a lot more of climbing communities to think about these kinds of questions. I mean, for one thing, it means that we actually have to form climbing communities. There has to be one, it has to be active, and it has to have credibility with local climbers, and, and it has to deal with the question of whether the things that, that it decides are, are voluntary or enforced. There's all those kinds of questions, and I don't have any answers about you know, <laughs> sure. any magic way to to get to get to that wonderful place. But I do know that you know I do really strongly feel that that uh, these are the kinds of con conversations we need to to start having as climbers, and then also among brands and and uh, out, you know within the outdoor industry, so that these sorts of issues. Uh, take on a higher profile because right now, you know, I really just don't see much discussion about cliffs and crags as as environments, but you know, as as ecosystems. But they are, and um, certainly, if we continue to ignore that as climbing grows and grows, then you do get to that inevitable place where somebody else steps in and says, "We're going to regulate your behavior because you have failed so far to regulate it for yourselves." Hmm. I just wanted to talk a little bit more about um, traveling. Like the only concrete really image that comes to mind there is like the fact that brands will, you know, brand ambassadors and athletes will promote these lifestyles that involve tons of flying, basically, right? Yeah. And so that seems like a really concrete problem. But then to kind of 
have the more philosophical discussion with individual climbers seems to now become much more fraught. Do you, does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, the, the traveling question is a tough one when it's, when it's considered individually and, and a pretty obvious one when it's considered community wide. So even, you know, a moment ago we were talking about sprinter vans and it's pretty easy to sneer at that shift in climbing culture from, you know, good old dirtbag culture in the tents. Uh, but at the same time, almost everybody's participating in in a behavior that has much more impact, which is flying around the world or flying around the country to visit various climbing destinations. I mean, obviously, some people don't, but many, many people do. And that shift, the shift from people being you know, more typically locally or regionally based climbers to uh, increasingly international climbers is, you know, is a really dramatic, high environmental impact shift in the culture. Um, how do we fix it? I don't know. Again, it's like, I guess the obvious answer is that we try to strengthen and rebuild local climbing cultures and, and, uh, and take shorter trips and, and, and encourage each other to do so, encourage brands to, to celebrate people that are doing that rather than running around the world you know, on a, on a global bouldering circuit. But I do know, again, we need to be talking about it, right? We need, we need to be, to be asking questions about it because it, it, it's a dramatic change, right? Um, we didn't, climbing culture didn't used to involve anywhere near as much travel as it does now. I can remember in the 1990s, Russ Clune being kind of selected out for climbing profiles because he was that guy who had been to all these places around the world. And now, I mean, I can go to my local climbing gym and meet 10 people who have been to as many places as Russ Clune, you know, went to back in the, in the 1990s when it was considered kind of remarkable for people to do it. It's a huge shift. So it's certainly a legitimate thing for us to start talking about. So back to like, just more broadly about these kinds of conversations that we need to have as a community. Are you particularly like optimistic or cynical about our ability to have these conversations? I'm not cynical about our ability to have the conversations. I, I think they're difficult, but I, I don't think they're, they're anything close to impossible. I think there's probably a lot of people out there who are you know just waiting for these sorts of conversations to open up you know so that they can they can start to share their opinions about some of the ways that climbing has changed and is likely to change and um, but at the same time I think you know it's really important when we're having these kinds of conversations not to get into situations where we're pointing to other people's consumption and saying that's bad and and this behavior is problematic and we should really just be looking at what are the community-wide impacts what are the big trends that are changing the impact that the climbing community has and how could we start to address those and more important i think than coming down on each other for our you know imperfect environmental choices is to feed back to the brands and the outdoor industry to say we want you to change. We want you searching for business models that are going to make it easier for us to consume in a more responsible way. Because what we're probably, what most of us are probably going to do 
is follow the path that's laid out in front of us when it comes time to to buy you know a new snowboard or a bike or a pair of climbing shoes and that path can be more or less responsible more or less environmentally sane and i really think we need to be asking the brands to do a better job so when you say asking the brands to do a better job do you have any suggestions for how people can be more effective there i mean it's never been easier to interact with brands right i mean you you don't even have to sit down and write a letter and put a stamp on it all of them have social media portals that are very easy to access it's not hard right it's it's not hard to start expressing our opinions to brands the thing that we need to recognize is that uh they're certainly not going to change if we don't ask them to do so i mean it's very easy for for outdoor corporations to stick with what they're doing it works it's working for them they people are making money um they're they're growing they're you know they too are kind of following out the path that's laid out for them in consumer culture if we want them to become more innovative and you know more aggressive in in changing that culture then there's no other way it's going to happen right we we the one path is for consumers to say we want you to start reinventing consumption um we're happy to participate we'll support companies that that start to go down that path and and you know perhaps we'll turn our backs on those that don't uh but it's not going to start with them you know uh there's absolutely no incentive for them to change mm-hmm. it's also the responsibility hopefully of 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 gear review companies to start to specifically address that question of social responsibility and environmental responsibility, right? So usually when I see gear reviews, I don't see, uh, and I'm not speaking about blister in particular, but typically when I look at gear reviews, I don't see those issues highlighted, right? Uh, which which makes it harder for consumers to navigate the market if that if those are values that they want to to bring to their purchasing. Well, but yeah, and uh, I really, really appreciated your having kind of contributed to this conversation in a very, you know, um, <laughs> you kind of chose not to just like fuel my cynicism. <laughs> my pleasure. I mean, I, I think a lot of my approach to these issues stems from the fact that I know that I am up to my eyeballs in it myself, you know, and and everyone I know is. Consumer culture is the water that we're all swimming in. And if our attitude around changing it is to point fingers at other people, then we're missing the point. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. We're, we're, we're all in it. And, uh, and we all need to participate in, in starting the kinds of conversations that can change it. For the record, I'm proud to be publishing this through Blister, which does not accept money from the companies making the products it reviews, and therefore I believe can platform this type of conversation with integrity. So thank you to Jonathan Ellsworth for running an honest company. And thank you for listening. We'll be back again soon. Thank you.